Welcome to Trollodron Behind the Scenes. Episode 10, Trial of the Wizard King Backstory. Well, hello and welcome to another exciting adventure that we call Trilodrin Behind the Scenes. I'm Chad Corey, and today we're going to talk about book two in the Wizard King trilogy, which is called Trial of the Wizard King. Now, I'm going to preface this about front by saying, as I did for the previous episode, I talked about Return of the Wizard King. If you have not read Trial of the Wizard King and you want to do so, you might want to wait on holding off on listening to this episode because I will be sharing spoilers. I will be sharing some things that come up and they might uh, spoil, shall we say, aspects of the second book and maybe even uh, some parts of the third book in the trilogy. So just wanted you to be aware of that. You can't say I didn't warn you now. <laughs> so with that in mind, Let's get into what we want to talk about today, which is some of the background and backstory of Trial of the Wizard King. And again, I'm going to kind of follow the same pattern and process I did with the previous episode about Return of the Wizard King, sharing what I can about it. I'm not going to necessarily get into all the nitty-gritty stuff because that would be too long of an episode, but just share some of the high points and things that I found in the writing process to be of interest, I think, of benefit and interest to you. Basically, when we got to the second book, the idea was to have a different type of process for the story. I know I shared last time on Return of the Wizard King that the idea with that book was to build up more of the characters' background before they met, which was kind of a very unique way to do the story because that wasn't normally how stories were told. Normally, everything was put in place. You met the people already in situ, so to speak. They're already there. They were kind of hanging out and doing their thing, and they were already kind of a group or very close to becoming a group before you got into the story, and everyone kind of went on their merry way, and we had the, the story. With book two, we took another extreme, I guess you can say, um, by basically having the characters split off into what I could call mini-stories, and this, again, uh, was kind of a risk. It was kind of a different departure from traditional fantasy fiction in that there wasn't a consistent thread with everybody involved all the time. We basically took the concept of the first book and incorporated it into the second book to a higher and larger degree. So if you really want to think about it, you're reading for, I think, probably about the first half to three-fourths of the book, you're reading several different stories combining slowly into one larger narrative. So it was kind of a fun introduction, I think, to the writing process for the characters. I think by doing that, it allowed the characters to really come out and shine more than they had ever before. And that's why it was crucial, I think, going back to the first book, Return of the Wizard King, to have the characters have more of a extended background information on them where possible before we initially met them, because then that would allow us now to tap into that with the second book and pull more out of that and actually enrich it and kind of finish their own storylines. In a lot of ways, it was really fun to do that because 
it allowed me the opportunity to show you, the reader, more of this world setting, but do it in a more logical and maybe even a progressive way in that you're introduced to different parts of the world, introduced to different characters, introduced to different scenes and interactions and things that were outside of the normal over-narrative, if you will, of the, the overall plot for the entire trilogy, in particular for the second book. And that allowed me a lot of fun to explore, like I said, different cities, different environments and such that I might not have been able to do necessarily if it wasn't for these particular character groups or, or situations that their own individual stories merited. And it allowed the characters the freedom of flexibility to truly roam wild, if you will, into their own little mini uh, literary world of their own uh, evolving plot line and storyline themselves. So I thought it was kind of fun. It was also fun to see how all that tied together and pulled together. The initial challenge, of course, when you're doing that kind of thing is you don't want to get too crazy with it or too far afield because you have to bring it back and tie it together kind of close to the end of the second book so you can set things up in time to get ready for the third book and then the final culmination of that storyline. So that was always in the back of my mind when you know it was being written. You got to, you know, don't make it too crazy. You got to keep you know reeling it in, bringing it back, reeling it in, bringing it back to make sure we can kind of come to that, you know, thread that needle at the end with all these threads and kind of make that rope again and continue on with that for book three. And I think for the most part, that worked really well. I was happy with how the different characters came about as far as their, their storylines evolving, the uh, richness of a lot of their backstory and their personal, if you want to call them struggles and uh, worldviews and things, really came more into focus in a lot of ways. Um, I was really surprised, I think, in one way, how Vinder's storyline progressed because I honestly don't know if we would have really had the opportunity to actually go into a dwarven community, a dwarven, especially a mountain dwarf community, given our you know the composition of the, the current group that we're talking about, and see what was really going on from especially from a dwarf's eyes. So it was really that was fun. That was interesting how that took place to me, and it added a little bit of a touch of. Uh, added flavor we really might not have gotten before through other means. So I thought it was kind of a fun, fun thing there. Obviously, I, I liked what happened with, with Dugan. I think that was a fitting storyline, a fitting through line, if you will, that got him to where he needed to be with, uh, with the end of book two. And I thought that was perfect how it ended as far as, you know, you start from the beginning of book one, and then we end at the end of book two, and we've kind of come full circle in a lot of ways. And and more symbolic and other things too, which I thought added a lot of fun and, and resonance to the character, which actually will play out more, even more so, I should say, excuse me, in book three. And I can't say too much about that yet, but I will say it gets very interesting where uh, that storyline goes and develops as well. One of the more surprising elements of the story, which I was really not expecting to happen, was Kadrissa really stepping up and becoming more of a of independent dominant character. I've really that surprised me on some some levels, but also surprised me how well Cadrith came out and shined in a lot of ways. And just having that background, those little scenes where he was able to we don't he doesn't really talk about his past, but we have those flashbacks and things that tell us more about you know who he was, what he went through. You begin to kind of think, well maybe he's not so much this classic, you know, arch villain kind of thing. He actually is just 
he has an agenda and wants to achieve it. And he just, that agenda just happens to maybe not necessarily be the best, <laughs> best situation for everybody in the world. But for him, it's great. But just, just having that, that background of him and where he's coming from and more about what he's doing, I think, tied in nicely and really made a nice contrast to where Kadrissa was and what she was about and the struggles and the progression that she was having herself as a character and a mage in general. You know, where is her place? What is she looking to achieve in her life? And is is this her future? Is this kind of what she's going to become? This, I don't want to say maniacal, but this, you know, power-crazed individual trying to achieve his ultimate ends. Is that her future? Is that her fate? And so that was fun to play that back and forth. And believe it or not, that will have more resonance in book three when we find out some more secrets and some connections there between the two that were kind of hinted at in book two. If you're really, really clever or quick, maybe you'll catch some little subtle clues here and there. But it'll be really clear uh, after you know book three. You can go back and say, oh, that's what that meant. Oh, that's what that meant. But it's it was fun to put that in there. Like I said, I was very surprised to see it turned out as well as it did as far as how you how I actually felt as just the reader reading the stuff over again. I'm like, wow, this is really cool. I actually have more of an interest in the villain, <laughs> you know, in some ways, and actually have more of a, an understanding of the thought process of what they're doing. So he became more three-dimensional. He became more, I guess, interesting as a character, as a person, which is great. I like to see that. And it just added another dimension of, of drama and, I think, emotional appeal to the the stakes and some of the interactions and things that took place and i i really liked this, i really liked how that came out there the the background story with uh with dugan we talked about but the really interesting thing i thought which didn't surprise me but i was i was pleased with how well it came out was how we took alara and uh, rowan they made an interesting couple and they made an interesting dynamic and just having, it always seems to be, I just, I, I have an interest as a writer. It's just maybe how I like to write right now is you always like to have opposites in situations because they play off so well off each other. And so you have one person that says X, Y, and Z, another person that says, you know, ABC. It's like they don't, they don't see eye to eye on stuff. And that allows for a great amount of friction, discourse, an explanation of their various viewpoints. And you can kind of do a bunch of I don't want to say analysis, but you can share different different opinions and things on it and let the reader decide for themselves what is and isn't right and stuff like that. So that's fun. That's enjoyable. But I'd like to see how they both were kind of influencing and impacting the other in, in various ways. You can see some of Rowan rubbing off on Alara. You can see probably a little bit more of Alara rubbing off on Rowan in, in a lot of different ways. But the big thing that, that I really liked in there was the scene at the end at the, the skull splitter, you know, I believe it was called, where they had that final, I don't want to say epiphany, but that final discussion of their personal relationship and where that was going. And that, to me, turned out really well. I think was it was a great culmination of Rowan's character right there. He was developed a whole lot more in, in book two, not that he was not developed in book one, he just, he had a certain a role in a certain place, and he also was kind of the outsider in the first book, because a lot of the time was spent focusing on the other characters in the book and establishing all the other parameters of the story and, and so on and so forth. He kind of came in towards the middle, 
kind of was there and did some stuff, but he always was kind of kept in the, in the not the background, but kind of kept a little bit separate. He got a little bit closer at the end, and they kind of formed more of a cohesive unit, but, you know, they split up again at the end of book one, and now we have them traveling together in the beginning of book two. So it was fun to see how that all took place, the struggles, the journeys, the challenges that he had uh, individually. I thought that was very unique in his own challenges with how he saw elves and his own uh, coming to terms with you know, do I, I, I love this woman, but she's an elf, so how can I love her kind of thing, that kind of stuff. So that was interesting. I thought that was really, really good as far as how that turned out. You don't always know how that's going to work going into something. And sometimes it can be a lot more work than, than you realize. And sometimes it doesn't work at all. But as I went back and, and forth and reread stuff and worked with the editors and things and saw how it was all coming together, I said, man, this is really good. So I was really pleased with how that turned out. Uh, the fun stuff with, I thought it was kind of strange. I don't know. Maybe you guys thought differently. I have no idea. But with with Gilbin and Haddock, I thought that was kind of the more interesting, maybe side adventure <laughs> out of all of it. But it will end up being a very important element in the entire story. So, But it was, it was interesting to see that because, again, here I had the opportunity in writing it to take you to where you probably will never go. Uh, to that level of depth and uh, exploration, which is Rexatoyas. And we I'm not going to say what happens in book three, because maybe you go back, maybe you don't. But we won't be able to see it exclusively through elven eyes, people who live there. And actually, we don't really know much about Gilban. We just kind of, he's that mysterious guy that kind of just, he's just there. And this allowed me the opportunity to kind of fill in more about the priesthood, fill in more about who he is as a person, what he did, how he's come to be who he is and what he's going to do now and do next and things like that. So I thought that worked really well as, as far as the, uh, the writing device went, the plot of it went. Uh, again, the idea was to explore more of the backstory of Gilman, as it was for all these short little vignettes, if you want to call them that. It was to explore more of their backstory and, and share more of the world, but also tie together the overall narrative that was connecting everything in general, pulling it through until the end of the book and into book three. But I think that was fun because, again, we got to see Goralis, and I don't, we haven't had a dragon encounter yet. And this isn't a dragon, it's a Lenorm. But we haven't had something that big and, and um, in your face yet. It's been, it's been more, you know, the fighting has been, you know, yes, we've had liches, we've had, you know, <laughs> different things like that. But we haven't had something as grandiose as, you know, the classic you know, fantasy trope of the of the dragon or the Lenorm. And so having that in the book and but having the twist on it where we introduce this, you know, priesthood tied to it, I thought was kind of fun because it also is a nice way of planting seeds for some future stuff we'll get into in future books, maybe some graphic novels, hint, hint, um, down the road as we get the permission to uh, finally begin getting into those and uh, publishing them. But it was all fun. I liked it. I thought it was interesting because as a writer, again, I got to explore more of the background of the character for Gilbin, which I've always wanted to do. Um, the challenge with the first book is you really couldn't... It wasn't his story. Return of the Wizard King really wasn't his story. And he he had to be that mysterious leader kind of guy because you weren't we weren't really getting to know him through him necessarily, we were getting to know him through Alara and the interactions of the other characters. It wasn't so much about him, it was about, you know, how he was perceived and what people believed about him in general. 
War is the second book, we get the opportunity to explore more about his inner thoughts, his inner workings, kind of what it's like. For me as a writer, it was uh, it was a different situation when I had to write scenes for him because, again, he's blind. So you're trying to figure out how would he describe this if he couldn't see it? Uh, how would he interact with something? What does he perceive something to be? How does he, you know, what? obviously he's going to probably catch more in, in vocalization and tones of things, smells. Um, how things feel. Uh, he's maybe going to remember how something might have looked. Maybe he'll mention something he probably knows has changed. He, can, he uses his imagination more. So you get some quasi-visual elements in there, but again, they're old memories, which you can use to, to hash out how things might, like I said, how things have been, how maybe they've changed or stayed the same, things like that. So that was that was a unique situation when we had the opportunity to do that. The downside with that, of course, is that you can't write an entire book or a whole chapter series with that being the case because, um, at least for this particular story, because we had a lot of visual stuff that needed to be conveyed and a lot of stuff, some subtle things too that needed to be kind of put in there as well that needed to be done that way. Obviously, you couldn't explain how big a dragon was or big, you know, Goralis was saying Gilblin heard a voice. Well, okay, you don't... You know, it's kind of lame to think, well, he, he estimated by the size of the voice and echo in the cave that, you know, the guy was at least, you know, you could probably try and do that and get away with it, but it's just, it's a lot easier to have someone who, you know, who's able to physically see something, just describe it in the more traditional manner that people are familiar with, and then kind of kind of go from there. So that was fun. It was fun. Um, I just had fun with Corrales. I think he was just, even for the little cameo he had there, it was fun to get a, a Lenormand or a Dragon in there because he's just been a fun character to to have in the back of my mind, in the back of these stories for, for a long time. So it was finally fun to see him see him get in there and get his due, so to speak, in uh, some paper press, if you will. But yeah, I was I was really I like that. I think it was fun having the ending set up the way it was. Uh, I The ending was something I went back and forth on for quite a while when I initially wrote this. I didn't know for sure if I wanted to end it where I did on book two with everyone basically being defeated and some of them dead, kind of on a downer note, or if I wanted to have that be the start of book three and then kind of go from there. You know, basically book two would be everyone gets to the the gallbow, the stone circle, and then they would stand there and be prepared, and all of a sudden there he is, and that's kind of where we end on the cliffhanger and. You know, I, I did that. That's what my initial thought was. That's how I initially wrote it was, you know, everyone got there and they got set up and they're all ready to go. And then they go, oh, you know, you know what do we do next? And that's where we you know, draw the curtain, close scene, go on to third, third book. But then I realized there wasn't a lot of energy in that. It was kind of a what do you want to say, a letdown or anticlimactic in a way that we do this big build-up throughout book two. Oh, we're going to get together, we're going to stop this lich, we got to get him, we're going to stop him. And then they get there and then they don't stop him. So basically it's just a big build-up to nothing. And I, just, I didn't think that was right, it didn't feel right. I didn't think that was fair to you as a reader, it didn't really accomplish anything. And it was kind of, like I said, anticlimactic and didn't really serve the ultimate end of the storyline agenda, which was to get everyone back together and face the Lich, face Cadreth. So, and then I realized, too, on the other hand, that if you start the book that way for book three, that's kind of a really weird start. Everyone, you know, dies, and then it's like, what? And then you, then you have to restart the story again by everyone kind of reassessing where they are. So it's kind of a, a weird leg and a slow period there that just didn't, didn't jive right. So I'm moving the end chapter back to where it is now, 
everything I think flows the right way and they end. And actually, it's I think for me as, well, obviously as a writer, but I think as a reader too, it's more enjoyable when you see the bad guy, quote unquote, actually win. That, well, even temporarily, he actually achieves godhood. He gets what he came for and everyone else is defeated. So now you're wondering, well, what in the world is is going on? You know, how does this how does this work? The guy won, you know, they lost. So I think that opens a lot of questions and it gets a lot of people thinking and it builds up a lot more tension because now obviously it leads more, I think, appropriately into a book entitled Triumph of the Wizard King, if you know that the Wizard King has triumphed in the last book and now he's going to continue to triumph in this third volume in the uh, Wizard King trilogy. So that worked a lot, a lot of different levels. It worked, like I said, the flow and the energy of it worked really well. The ending, I think, worked very well, strong-wise. I think it was a good spot to be. And it allowed me, uh, at the end, I don't know if you remember that, maybe you do if you've read it recently, there's a little segment at the end with the gods that sets things up oh so nicely for book three in some very subtle, subtle ways. Again, you might not catch it if you read it right now without the foresight or <laughs> foreknowledge of book three in your reading perspective, but there are a lot of subtle clues and hints and things in that little, I think, what, page and a half or whatever it is of of encounters with the gods in the very last page of the book and kind of sets things up and hints at some things for book three. So again, some more, more hidden little Easter egg things in there as well to enjoy. But that's that a lot, like I said, allowed me to end it that way. It was kind of a fun way to do it. And then it allowed me to have a better beginning in book three, um, which is where they kind of wake up after the aftermath and have to deal with what took place and, and go from there. So it just, it was a good break. It worked well. And I, like I said, I ultimately after rereading it and going into it and, and doing the editing work, I, I was pleased with how it turned out. One of the things which I didn't know how it would work as well, and I think ended up working pretty well, was the introduction of the death priests or the Asorlans, uh, Tebow and Crassius. I think that was Ultimately, it's something that needed to be done because the challenge was obviously if you have all these different characters on their own little side quests or journeys or lives, if you will, and they have no real reason to get back together and you know join the band again to uh, or form the band again to go back after the enemy, there you need something outside of them to bring that together. And I drew, and I didn't really think of having a repeat of what we did for the first book, which which is more of a divine type of intervention, if you will. This is still, there's still elements and things at play, as you know, in, in book two, we introduce the gods, we introduce uh, various groups and factions and things that are working behind the scenes to bring certain aspects or things about. And that was fun to incorporate in there as well. But with the death priests, with the Astralins, I think having them involved provided the perfect connection point to tie everything together because they were the connection point between the gods and the other powers and factions moving along the scenes, behind the scenes, and our characters in general. And the fact that they only had to interact with two characters, Dugan and Vinder, I think speaks well of their purpose and their usage in the story. Had they had to go off and accomplish this and get all the people involved, it would just not be a very fun story. It would not be very enjoyable. And actually, I, again, I won't get into it more, but it's kind of fitting that Crassius and Tebow do the initial encounters and interactions and such with Dugan and even with Vinder, because that is going to tie into some more stuff 
in the future and in particular book three and uh, maybe some other things at the end of book three and uh, moving forward I won't get into at this uh, particular moment. But it also allowed us to connect with Galba and establish her early on as a person of interest and place of interest that people could really benefit from and uh, get some foresight and information on beforehand because a lot of the stuff which again you get into in the book there's there's you know several different stories going on in different aspects in different ways and so having this means of connecting to a central narrative again which was what Thibault and Crassius did was a, a fun way to accomplish that and to do that so that I think is where I'm going to wrap up on this before I start getting too much into a ramble on things but just wanted to share some background notes and what I thought about it and how I got into it and what I enjoyed about it um, there wasn't a whole lot of secret information this time around with delete, deleted scenes and things like that. I told you about the, the, the chapter change and things like that. But for the most part, the characters were established. The storyline, the plot was basically already plotted out. It was just a matter of you know following along and completing it and getting it done. The big challenge, of course, being how that was accomplished. That through the split narrative, if you will, with the individual characters going their own ways, but still having a, an overarching uh, plot and maybe even some spin-off plots to that that needed to be addressed and, uh, and tied into things in general. So that is that, but thanks for listening for that. I will be sharing another update on this for Triumph of the Wizard King when we get closer to that uh, actually being applicable. I'm not going to share anything right now, obviously, before it's released, and I'm probably going to wait on that maybe until the end of the, the year at the earliest or maybe next year based upon uh, giving people some time at least to at least read it and get into it. But then I'll probably share more about my overall thoughts and things about not just book three, but also kind of how the series ended and what might be coming. So that's it. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next month. This podcast is copyright Chad Corey. All rights reserved. <laughs>